Every big city has its iconic structures. San Francisco has the Golden Gate Bridge. New York City, the Statue of Liberty. Chicago has Buckingham Fountain. If you can't picture it, imagine water cascading down a wedding cake-shaped fountain. As majestic, greeny-bronze seahorses surround a stream of water shooting to seemingly impossible heights. And that pump just goes directly up and out for the center jet, and that's 1,500 gallons of water a minute. That's the pump that gets the spout up to 150 feet. I'm Jason Mark, and we're going to take you into the guts of Buckingham Fountain and figure out how it works. And later in the show, we'll hear the dirty details about why Chicago has so many alleys. It has a lot to do with the most common form of transportation in the 1800s. Well, the horse has the the inflow and outflow uh, problems. You have to bring in a lot of hay. You have to muck out a lot of manure. You know. The kind of stuff you wouldn't want to crawl through on your way to a night out in the city. But first, reporter Chloe Persinos tells the story of the fountain one writer referred to as the lyric of the lake. That's next, after the break. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Alan Ireland is an HVAC contractor and a self-described pump guy. So I heard that Buckingham Fountain is run off of one individual pump and that there is one employee whose responsibility it is to keep the fountain running. Is that true? Alan doubts one pump could do the job. And he said growing up, he heard fables about the fountain and one hidden engineer. This might come out really wrong, but like the troll under the bridge that keeps the bridge going or whatever... Well, I'm hoping to find that troll. <laughs> That's a ter- that sounds terrible, but let's call it like the lighthouse keeper. It's a nice office to have, Buckingham Fountain. I very much enjoy working down here. That's Eric Kelmar, proverbial troll under the bridge, a.k.a. chief engineer for Chicago Park District. He manages the team of about five engineers who tend to Buckingham Fountain. We try to keep it into a small family of people who uh, operate it daily. Every morning, an engineer throws on a pair of waders and removes debris that birds lodged in the fountain overnight. Then, at 8 a.m., they go underground, into the proverbial cave under the bridge to prep for the first water show at 9. Except it's not a cave, but a beautiful room in marble. You can still see the bronze levers they used to control the pumps, back when engineers operated the fountain manually. Today, the system is automated, but you can still override it with the flip of a switch. So I'm taking the seahorse's valve, I'm switching it from auto to off. After a 13-second delay, the valves in the seahorses close, they stop spitting, and there they go. And on a computer display, the seahorse's icons change from green to red. Kelmar says the center jet can shoot water as high as 150 feet in the air. 
That's 15 stories. So, how many pumps does it take to pull that off? Kalmar takes me deeper underground to the pump room where there are three big pumps. Pump number three is the showstopper. And that pump just goes directly up and out for the center jet, and that's 1,500 gallons of water a minute. That's the pump that gets the spout up to 150 feet. And the pumps are the original 1927 hardware. Their combined power totals 575 horsepower. That's the same as 23 cars back when they were built. Years ago, uh, we had them completely pulled out of the pump house and rewound, and they said uh, there's no reason to replace. They were well built, and uh, with the new upgrades, they should last another 100 years. No planned obsolescence here. In fact, Kelmar says that if they were to replace the original pumps, they would need about 24 modern pumps to do the same job. There we have it. The hidden pumps that so captivated questioner Alan Ireland, they were built to last. And they were built to impress. But why? Julia Backrack has the answers. To set the scene, she explains that at the turn of the last century, the lakefront was full of ash, trash, and debris. For years and years, there was this raw kind of landfill, just flat, dirt terrain. The public debated what to do with this eyesore. Some people argued that a new, splendid lakefront should have a massive, splendid building, like the opulent French palace, Versailles. Mail-order magnate Montgomery Ward was opposed. Like Chicago's founding fathers, Ward felt the downtown lakefront should remain forever open, clear, and free. Plus, his office had a great view of the lake. In 1909, Ward got his way, and architect Edward Bennett began building a compromise. So if you couldn't have the Palace of Versailles as the visual focal point for the park, what would you do? Well, he created what was then believed to be the world's largest fountain that was inspired by a beautiful fountain at Versailles. Bennett's fountain wouldn't block the view of the lakefront, but taxpayers would not fund his ornate design. So Bennett approached philanthropist Kate Buckingham, her family had made a fortune in grain elevators. She said, well, about how much is it going to cost? And initially they said, oh, probably about 300000 That's it? Buckingham said no problem and asked that the fountain be named after her late brother Clarence. But that original estimate proved low. By the time all was said and done, she donated slightly over a million dollars. Finally, on August 26, 1927, the Clarence Buckingham Memorial Fountain was ready for the public. At the time that it was dedicated... They had a lot of hoopla. They knew this was a big deal. John Philip Sousa's orchestra played Pomp and Circumstance. And so tens of thousands of Chicagoans gathered. They say 50,000. And of course, Kate Buckingham was in attendance. A Chicago Tribune calmness waxed poetic. Quote, In a week, the Buckingham Fountain has captured the imagination of the town, enlarged its aesthetic sense, and done its spiritual good. It is the lyric of the lake. It will never grow old, or commonplace. But almost a hundred years later, does Buckingham Fountain still capture the imagination of Chicago? I ask a few people milling about the fountain what they think. People remember it from the opening credits of a classic sitcom. We love married with children, and I just wanted to see this, and I finally got to see it, and it's real. I didn't, I'm like, this couldn't be real, but this is beautiful. 
Barnabas Shane of Atlanta is not the only one who's in awe. I talk to tourists zipping around on segways and people cooling off in the fountain spray. Everyone I talk to is impressed. Yeah, pretty much. It is very beautiful. Buckingham Fountain has not grown old or commonplace. Would you like to take a selfie with us? Oh, of course. All right. <laughs> that was Chloe Prasinos. Next up, Stephen Jackson explains why Chicago has so many alleys. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. There are two kinds of neighborhoods in the Chicago area, those with alleys and those without. Might not seem like an important distinction, but consider. We have 1,900 miles of them. As the crow flies, that would get you from Chicago to Mexico City. And unless you're taking out garbage or squeezing a U-Haul back there, you probably don't think about alleys. But Chicago architect Dan Weiss doesn't take his alley for granted. It's the rec room of the block. It's where everybody's basketball hoops are hung. It's great. Weiss grew up in Lincoln Park, where he played in the alley behind his family's row house. Saturday mornings, all the garage doors would open up and um, people would be working on cars or, you know, working on a woodworking project or taking the garbage out. And you could have a relationship with them, um, kind of a neighborly thing. But it was very different than than the people you would meet on, on your street. Weiss doesn't play in the alleys anymore, so he says. But he is curious about them. question was the alleys that that exist in Chicago, who mandated them. Like, basically, why are they there? So the short answer to the question is, by 1830, it was so commonplace to use alleys in laying out new towns that the General Assembly simply expected it to happen in Chicago. This is Dennis McClendon. I call myself a Chicago geographer and historian. McClendon says in the early 1800s, Illinois wanted to encourage business and land sales. The state wanted the Chicago surveyor to get things right, so it required him to include, quote, town lots, streets, and alleys. Why were alleys so important to legislators? If only I could find someone who researches alleys. My name is Michael Martin, and my research interest is alleys. Martin's a professor of landscape architecture at Iowa State University. He says alleys date back to Roman times, but Americans started building alleys on a massive scale as they expanded west. So let's rewind to the 1700s. America was young and had hardly touched anything west of the Ohio River. There's just this one thing you can do without having to go and explore all of it is just to lay a grid over that giant swath of land. And sell it to pioneers. This land ordinance of 1785 divided the western United States into square townships. Then, each township was split into smaller and smaller sections. That leads to towns having square blocks, you know, 16th of a mile square blocks, and then ultimately the alley inside of that block. 
So the big picture is, gridded westward expansion naturally led to blocks with alleys. Dennis McClendon has another theory for why alleys were big in the West. On the frontier, lots of city folks owned horses. Well, the horse has the <laughs> the inflow and outflow uh, problems. You have to bring in a lot of hay. You have to muck out a lot of manure. And to keep the muck off the streets, city planners were highly motivated to build alleys. Martin says that makes sense. Yes, alleys were good for dirty stuff. At a time without indoor plumbing or garbage trucks, people kept their waste back in the alley, away from living quarters. This is one of the reasons why alleys have this kind of dark and uh, nasty reputation. You know, they were, they were very much the kind of grimy service part of daily life. And so it wasn't expected that this would be a well-maintained landscape. It was kind of a landscape of uh, raw utility. So because of the land grid and for reasons that smelled terrible, alleys spread through Chicago and nearby towns. But things started to change in 1869. That year, Frederick Law Olmsted, the father of landscape architecture, laid out Riverside on the outskirts of Chicago. Well, it was the outskirts back then. Today, it's in the near west suburbs. Riverside was the first planned suburb in America and the beginning of the end for alleys. Constance Guardi from the Riverside Historical Commission walks me around town. She says Olmsted wanted a community for the future a combo of countryside peacefulness and urban luxury. The streets are wide and windy and lined with trees. The plan was so that it would meander rather than, you know, that hustle and bustle. Big houses sit back from the street behind lush, rolling lawns, and there's no alley in sight. Do you think that it was a difficult choice for the planners of Riverside to leave alleys out? No. The plan was, I don't think, would have even considered alleys. I mean, I've never liked alleys. Really? Uh, No. Tell me me about your And I'll tell you why I didn't like alleys. They were dirty. For years, Riverside was just odd. Other suburbs that popped up around it, like Berwyn and Cicero, followed Chicago's lead with alleys and a grid. Look at a map today, and Riverside is a squiggly green island in a sea of squares. But Olmsted's plan for Riverside was ahead of its time. By the turn of the century, more planners designed communities to be beautiful and clean, counterpoints to the industrial city. But instead of the old, boring grid of the National Survey, we're now going to do curving streets because they're different and they're modern. It becomes the new way to do things. At the same time, sewage tech and garbage collection improved, so cities didn't need service lanes to take care of all the dirty stuff anymore. And this was the dawn of the automobile age, which meant, one, less horse poop, and two, more people commuting into the city from wide-open suburbs, where planners didn't have to conform to a dense city grid. They could have large lots and wide streets. And so the street is the main thing. We now have, have street design accommodating all of the utilitarian needs of the neighborhood. Over time, Chicago stopped expanding, and the divide I mentioned earlier got solidified. New places sprang up without alleys, while the city and the oldest suburbs were left with alleys they'd built decades earlier. So what to do with Chicago's inherited alleys? For one, the city's repaving them to prevent runoff and flooding. For questioner Dan Weiss, who always liked hanging out in alleys, it's nice that they're finally getting some attention. It's interesting to see how the city has has kind of accepted that thing with a certain rationale, and then it's really kind of just changed over time. 
it hasn't become irrelevant. You know, the way people kind of inhabit their, their city adapts to this reality, to this physical reality. That was former Curious City producer Stephen Jackson. Both of the stories in this week's episode originally aired in 2015. tell you about an upcoming event. Curious City has spent the last year reporting on the history, culture, and issues around gentrification in the Pilsen community. We gathered questions from residents outside local libraries and at outdoor markets. We partnered with local organizations and reported several stories driven by questions from people in the neighborhood. You heard stories about Loteria doors, Benito Juarez High School, Aztec dancers, and more. Now, we're inviting you to celebrate this work with us. At a very special event at the site of a recent episode, the El Paseo Community Garden. This free event will include a short film screening, family art workshops, beekeeping demos, food and drink vendors, and more. And we're going to do Curious City live. Join us September 24th from 4 to 8 p.m. at El Paseo Community Garden. And again, it's totally free. For more information, go to wbez.org slash events. Curious City is produced by me and Joe Dassault. Maggie Civet is our digital and engagement producer. Adriana Cardona-McGigot is our reporter. And Alexandra Solomon is the editor. Support comes from the Conan Family Foundation. I'm Jason Mark. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.